Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, COVID-19 cases continue to rise in the province, and there are worries in some municipalities that their status may change. Hamilton is one of them. We'll talk about that. Ontario's new modeling numbers are predicting up to 6,500 cases of COVID-19 a day. What has caused this change? We'll give you some of those details. And the trial of Alex Manassian is off for today, but we get an update on what's happened so far in this very troubling circumstance. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID, COVID, and more COVID. A troubling set of numbers that were uh, announced yesterday about uh, tracking and what's going on here. Uh, As it turned out, uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford was in Hamilton yesterday and asked about this, and, well, he's pretty frustrated. We can put every protocol in place. If if the people aren't following the protocols, it's just not going to happen. So we need everyone to make sure we follow the protocols. Okay, but is that going to do everything? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we need to look into this. The numbers tell a very, very different story from uh, what we had hoped was going to happen with this second wave. Joining us to dissect some of this is uh, Chris Bach, who is a research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics. He's done extensive research into SARS and uh, the 2009 pandemic, uh, the influenza, a specialist in math and computer modeling of uh, infectious disease outbreaks, of vaccination, and social distancing at the University of Waterloo. Chris, thank you for joining us again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Try to make some sense out of what's going on here. I know that you, you know people like you do projections on this and say, okay, this is the way it's probably going to roll out, and if we if we are this much compliant, it's going to do this. Uh, I thought we were on the right track. I know there's still some concerns about masking, and maybe we're getting a little sloppy with social distancing, but these numbers about possibly six thousand new cases a day—that's mind-boggling. That's right, and. Um... You know, I, I think it all goes back to uh, a number of factors that are that have been changing the past few months, and and that will continue to change throughout December. Uh, and, and that is, uh, unlike in in the summer, for example, uh, because the colder temperatures, we're seeing more people spending more time indoors, uh, and even in small social gatherings, the virus can be transmitted. Uh, also, schools are open, and you know, we haven't heard of too many cases in schools, but also we're not testing children very much, so we wouldn't necessarily know about it. Um, so I think essentially because uh, of, of the changes in the climate and also in the fact that we're, we're still reopened and we've been reopened since August, these are, uh, you know, contributing to the continual rise in cases. Um, the other thing it's, it's worth, worth remembering is that this, you know, cases grow exponentially, which means that they double every certain number of days. So if you reopen in August because you're starting from a low level, if you double a small number of cases, well, it's a little bit larger, but but maybe you don't really notice it. But if that doubling process continues, then then pretty soon we're at the situation now where where yesterday we were at 1,500 cases in Ontario, uh, and the cases will continue doubling uh, if we don't change anything. It, does that at what point, at what level, Chris, does it set off alarm bells to say, whoa, whoa, this is out of control, or are we there already? I think the, the, you know the. It, it, we should pay attention to the endpoints we really care about. So that's um, endpoints like deaths and how close we are to exceeding our ICU capacity. Now, Toronto is currently at around 80% ICU capacity, and hospitalizations and, and, and deaths and, and ICU occupancy are, are increasing um, outside of Toronto as well. So these are trends in the, the wrong direction. Um, it's hard to say exactly when ICU capacity will be exceeded in, in Hamilton, for example. 
but if, if the trends continue, uh, then it, it seems uh, likely it could happen at some point. Um, my specialization is actually more about predicting cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, other models are more focused on predicting, you know, what happens after a person gets infected in terms of, you know, their hospitalization state, et cetera. I'm, um, I'm not going to – go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so yeah, so so some some experts know more about that than I do, but but you know what I can tell you is that you know this 2,000 cases in December a day is is probably a low ball. I think we'll be at, at higher than that by December. Are we doing a good enough job of tracking this? I mean, are these numbers accurate? Uh, you know, because not everybody who probably has contracted the virus is is, is you know been. I guess, you know, chronicled into that. Can we assume that these numbers are a pretty good barometer, but it may be a little bit higher or a lot higher? Yeah, they're definitely somewhat higher. I would say maybe they're uh, up to twice as high. Uh, the actual cases are twice as high um, as what we capture in the reports, uh, and that's because, um, you know, some people are asymptomatic and they don't get, they don't mm-hmm. get tested because... They, you know, think maybe this is just a cold or something, or they don't have all the symptoms in the list. Uh, so there's definitely more cases out there. Um, our, our testing capacity is, I mean, it, it's pretty good. What you really want to be able to control this uh, is not just testing capacity, but fast turnaround and followed up by contact tracing. Uh, so the turnaround time is improving. Uh, you know, some people with symptoms are, are getting um, returns back faster than before, uh, but we also have to do contact tracing. Uh, and if we test fast, if we do fast contact tracing, then we don't have to um, accept other restrictions as as severely or, or as often. Uh, and I think that was that's been the real failure here is is the failure to get uh, the provincial testing and contact tracing up to scratch to where it needs to be. Well, and I've seen some of the mathematical models, and this is right into your wheelhouse, I guess. And as you talk about how exponentially this can grow, uh, and the one I saw, and it was uh, one person attending a wedding uh, with, uh, I think it was 30 or more people, and how quickly that can spread from that one person, uh, not just at the wedding, but you know, then they go out to the store the next day, etc. And there's, you know, there's on and on and on. It's it's amazing how quickly this thing can spread. You're right, and it has this very unusual feature that most people who have COVID. Uh, might infect one person or, or nobody, but then occasionally you have the super spreader who, if they attend a wedding, they'll infect 50 people. Uh, and that's why I, I think restrictions on group sizes, keep them down to 10 or less, are, are so important. Um, and, and that's something that's not really part of the new color-coded plan, or uh, at least not at levels that it should be, not for the colors that, that it should be, right? Uh, um, um, and I think that's a mistake. So, so one of the things we can really do is, is keep those group sizes down to stop these these events that you're referring to. Well, let me ask you about that. And again, I don't want to draw you too deep into the political uh, woods here, okay? But uh, the, the color coding system, uh, uh, because as you mentioned, you know, as, as you the, the colors become more extreme, from orange into red, eventually, uh, there there are more restrictions. Uh, given the projections we've got here. Uh, and the concern about how quickly this can spread, especially because, as you've just mentioned, the weather's getting colder, we're going to be indoors more. Oh, no, by the way, the flu season's coming up, too. Shouldn't we just scrap this yellow thing altogether and just say, guys, uh, for all intents and purposes, <clears throat> we're all in orange. We're going to have to restrict this thing. I mean, we're going to have to get pretty serious and make some tough decisions pretty quickly here, won't we? I agree. And and if you look at what's required in, in orange, you might be surprised to find that if you move to the orange status, there's a limit to, uh, for example, in restaurants, uh, 
yeah. 50 person indoors. You know, I can't remember that last time I was in a restaurant with 50 people, even before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so these are not really that that strict at all. This is actually more like uh, uh, the way things were back in January, or February, I would say. Um, so the the color coding system is, uh, I, I think it's it's kind of. I don't, I don't want to get into politics either. I think it's no, you know, I, yeah. I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I I don't think it's enough. What 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 we have here with this color coding system. And I don't think it will protect uh, uh, Ontarians, unfortunately. Let me ask you, when, when they say this, and we saw the, the, the folks, Dr. Williams and others, that were giving us these numbers yesterday, they said, you know, the, the number, that outrageous number of over 6,000 a day, if we do nothing, what does that mean? Does that mean if nobody's wearing masks, if we're not social distancing? Or if we, is this going to happen even if we do play by those rules? You know, to be honest, I'm not sure because they just released the slides and they don't yeah. tell you, tell us what's underneath, what's under the hood. I would have to look under the hood to see the details of the model and I don't have that information. Um, so, uh, you know, I couldn't tell you, but but if, if I think if we stick to this color coding system with these relatively lax measures, uh, you know, 6,000, I mean, 2,000 cases a day in December is, is probably the minimum. Uh, you know, based on what I've seen uh, with some of my models, uh, and um, 6,000 is, is definitely plausible with this color coding system. If, if more uh, regions don't move in, into the into the, the orange and the red, but this is all you know. Like I said, the real issue is is we need to get our contact tracing in order, and we got to cooperate with contact uh, tracing efforts. Like if you go to a restaurant. And uh, you know they asked you to put your name down there. You should you should put your real your real name and your phone number. So uh, you know we should not be afraid of contact tracing. And um, and though that's really a first line defense um, to 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 re- restrict the the negative impacts of COVID, both economic and health. Yeah, we seem a little reticent to do that. And, and I think there's a false sense of security. I mean, if you're living in an area that's yellow, you figure, ah, I can bend the rules a little bit. We're not too bad here. Uh, and I'm, I'm hearing stories anecdotally, but pe- the, the contact pricing, you're right, has just been a, a total failure. We're not doing it. Some restaurants aren't even bothering. You don't want to give me a name? Okay, that's fine. You know, don't want to arrest you. Yeah, you, you we got to get tough about this. we got to get serious about this. And uh, we need people like you, Chris, that can crunch the numbers for us and tell us what's going on. That's why it's always uh, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, yeah, thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Take care. Stay well. Chris Bach from uh, University of Waterloo, who uh, does those numbers and crunches them for us. Uh, the, the concern we've got here, especially here in the Hamilton area, is that we should apparently be moving into the orange because of the number of increases we've had. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the uh, medical officer of health for the city of Hamilton, uh, was pretty pretty concerned uh, given the comments and, and given the numbers that she had yesterday. What we're seeing with the numbers at this point is that many of them are squarely in the orange category. And so um, it's unfortunate, but in order to get better control of this virus, we um, are likely to see more restrictions being imposed. So what does that mean? Well, let's uh, ask the mayor. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, busy time, you, busy Bill. week. I know you were with the premier for a good deal of the day yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. and we can talk about that uh, another time. But I want to focus in on what uh, you've learned uh, with uh, the numbers with COVID here. It's, uh, they, these are pretty troubling numbers. We kind of thought we'd not necessarily tame the beast, but we seem to have it under control, but uh, maybe not so much now. Well, and unfortunately, uh, you know, some relaxation in the broader community, especially in social settings, I think has uh, has led us here. And so, uh, you know, we we know that in Hamilton, that that is predominantly the issue. 
uh, people gathering when they shouldn't. Uh, you, know, you know that about a month ago we said the what was uh, delightful for a lot of people was that you can have a social bubble of 10 uh, you know, people that you know and familiar with, you can get close to and not have to worry about masks. And all of that went out the window about a month ago based on increasing numbers, and uh, it, it no longer exists. And I want to remind people that this is not where we are today. Where we are today is stay within your own household. That's the, uh, that's the message that's been uh, you know, delivered for the past three weeks. Uh, it's based on anticipated higher numbers, uh, you know, obviously actual higher numbers that we're seeing now. And uh, you know, we're trying very, very hard to get people to, uh, to practice those policies. And that means uh, potentially, you know, doing what we were doing in March. Now, fortunately, we don't, I think, require a complete shutdown to achieve this. We now know that masking is effective. We didn't know that in March. We know that now. Uh, we also know that our healthcare system is a bit better prepared, and we have contracting place uh, uh, tracing in place. So there's a, there's some level of effectiveness to be able to uh, stay on top of it. But it, it is really based on how many cases we end up getting. And if I'm reading the report yesterday from the province in terms of their uh, you know project projections, uh, some six to seven thousand cases a day is now anticipated. That is well beyond the ability of contract tracing and our hospital uh, health care system. And we're going to find ourselves in a potentially a lockdown situation if we get there. So we need to do everything humanly possible to avoid that. But, uh, but again, it, it is really reliant on individuals in our community making a decision to not go visit other family members in their homes. Stay within your own home. Do the virtual visits as, like, like we were doing in March, April and May. If you're going to go out for groceries, of course, go get them. But do it, uh, you know, one, one person at a time. Don't, don't bring a group. It's all about limiting the amount of contact we have with uh, people in our community. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, you know, the premier doesn't like it. Uh, our, our medical officer of health doesn't like it. But we don't have too many options here. This virus is serious. We do not have a cure. Uh, even though the vaccine is, you know, purported to be, you know, on the horizon, it's not in our hands and likely will not be universally available for the better part of next year. Uh, so we have a serious issue to continue to have to deal with, and it's about protecting public health and ensuring that we uh, don't have this wide spread that happens to debilitate our healthcare system. So if we have too many cases, we're going to again have to make choices between who gets care and who does not get care. And that's certainly not where we want to be. So all that to say, it is all about now staying within your own household. Uh, I'm not going to go see my uh, kids and grandkids. Uh, I'd love to, but I'm not, I'm, I, I shouldn't and, and we mustn't. And uh, that is the, the steps that we need to take. Far too many people are taking those steps, and that is the, the cause of a lot of the spread that we're seeing. And that spread then it lend, it ends up in our long-term care facilities, potentially in some of our restaurants. Uh, and then they become outbreaks, and we now have some 20 outbreaks that uh, we're facing right now uh, throughout the community, community and growing. And, of course, uh, lastly, I'd say, you know, yes, seniors are the most at risk, those with, uh, you know, underlying health issues, but they're not the only ones at risk. Uh, so we, we now know that children are, are susceptible to this virus, uh, teenagers, young adults, anyone with uh, underlying health issues are all susceptible to uh, getting this virus and could all end up in the hospital if, uh, if they're not careful in terms of uh, avoiding 
a serious case of this. And and you know what? That's a, that's a, an enormous pressure on our healthcare system, which right now is not only dealing with that, but normal health issues, uh, the mental health issues that are that are you know escalating. The, uh, obviously, the surgeries that people need and require, and the in the treatments and their broken bones or all the things that are they normally happen. All of that is trying to get achieved. And we have the flu season upon us. So we're looking at a perfect storm of challenges for our healthcare system that we need to minimize, avoid, so that we don't get into a situation where we have to make choices between who gets care and who does not. Well, I was glad to see City Council crack down on uh, one of those businesses that I guess just was basically thumbing your nose at you. And uh, we, we need compliance mm-hmm. and by everybody, businesses and individuals. You're absolutely right. Mr. Mayor, here's hoping these numbers uh, start to go down, and we'll obviously get an update on this next week. But I do appreciate the time. Uh, have a great weekend uh, at your house. Thank okay, you. We'll talk again yeah, soon. Yeah, well, uh, in, in isolation, uh, I've got a lot of leaves to pick up, so I'll have lots there to do. There you go. There you go. That'll keep you busy. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg. Thanks, Mr. Mayor. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's spend a little more time talking about COVID because of the implications. And we're talking serious stuff here. Uh, Because if these numbers start to grow in the way that they think they're going to, uh, well, let's, you know, look at this practically. I mean, we're heading towards Christmas season, shopping season. People want to get together then. Uh, Is it going to happen? The, the rising COVID-19 numbers that were announced yesterday are on a path of reaching over 6,000 each day before Christmas. Global's Brianna Carnegie says the stark new projection by the province's science advisory table comes with a handful of warnings. Data shows the pandemic is worsening across the province. The number of patients in intensive care continues to grow, as does the number of long-term care residents that are dying. It's now uh, 71 deaths in the past seven days. And as case rates climb, you can expect mortality to climb as well. Ontario's COVID-19 case growth rate these last three days is around 6%. On that path, the province could soon exceed rates in several European areas that are in some form of lockdown. As for whether greater restrictions should be put in place here, the province's science advisory table isn't ruling it out. If the goal is to reduce the number of cases and the goal is to reduce the impact on the health system, then yes. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So what's causing this? How did we get here? So I bring Dion Ailman into the conversation, Associate Professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could uh, join us here and, and try to make some sense of these numbers. Uh, yes, how, thank you for having me. How did we get here? I mean, you know, this has been around for a while. We know a lot more about COVID-19 than we did in March and April. Uh, you know, we're, a lot of us are wearing masks. I, I think we're social distancing. Uh, yet, look, we just seem to be caving in here. What's happening? Well, I think this can really only be described as an abject failure by provincial leadership to create a scenario where people are, I mean, and, and everybody is really, truly incentivized to stay home as much as possible, to wear their masks, to not be in contact with other people, especially indoors for long periods of time. You know, we entered um, the stage three of the reopening back when uh, we had the three reopening stages as opposed to the uh, five colored stages now. Uh, we entered it at a time when there was still COVID uh, being transmitted in the community. Uh, granted, it was low across the province. It was uh, about 100 per day, and uh, you know, Toronto was at like 20 per day. So, you know, these were very easily manageable numbers, but still indicating that transmission was happening. And yet the province went ahead and opened everything. And sure enough, about three weeks later, all the cases, uh, case counts started to increase. And that was even about a week before school opened. And then once school opened, things just started to take off. And once the cat is out of the bag, it's really hard to put it back in. Once people are back at work, 
uh, businesses are are open and um, they're expecting their employees to be in person, it's hard to tell them to roll back and go back to working from home or potentially shutting down, especially if there's uncertain financial support for those um, employees and businesses. I want to go back to the old days. Uh, you know, when this whole thing started and the shutdown started in mid-March, uh, I remember, you know, the, the, the health experts and for that matter, the politicians, because they were all pretty much on the same page at that time, telling us, look, it, we've got to flatten the curve. That, that was the phrase. Everybody was adhering to it. We've got to flatten the curve. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to re- release any of the restrictions until we see, uh, I think it was th- two weeks or three weeks or something of steady decline. I don't think we ever got there, did we? I mean, we just started to see it getting a little bit, bit better and say, ah, okay, the worst is over. And you're right. We just started throwing the doors open and say, you know, let's let's just pretend this isn't going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, by around midsummer, we actually did flatten the curve. You know, as I said, case counts were really quite low, not zero, but still really quite low. And I think that, you know, we as a province did a really admirable job then. And uh, the provincial leadership then was taking things uh, what seemed to be quite a bit more seriously, you know, implementing, you know, shutdowns of um, um, all but essential businesses, really driving home the point that people needed to not socialize outside their own households. Um, you know, and the province did a good job then, and we, we reaped the benefits. But, uh, you know, I think it's perhaps just human nature to have a very short memory uh, you know, come August, uh, the weather's beautiful. You know, we're looking around. There's not that much COVID in here. We don't need all of these restrictions. Completely failing to remember what it was like just a few months earlier when we did not have those restrictions and everything was out of control. And the thing about pandemic growth is that it starts out growing slowly, but it, it's, it's like a snowball effect. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And every day we'll see more and more increases until we have the projections of let's say 3,000 cases per day across the province come mid-December, which seems perfectly reasonable given the growth trajectory that we're on. Um, so, you know, you can't, you can't really take half measures um, if you want to get this thing under control at this point. Uh, you know, the province's uh, red stage or the uh, modified red stage that Toronto are going into are really actually not all that different than what we have Right now, like the regular red states just provides additional restrictions on indoor dinings and gyms for the most part. And uh, the modified uh, stage red for Toronto is uh, just no indoor dining or indoor gyms. And it's really the only difference from what we have now. And that's just not going to cut it. You know, we've gotten ourselves into this position and, uh, you know, it's going to take some very bold and serious measures to get us out. Which nobody wants to do from a political and nobody standpoint. Nobody wants to do, right? You know, if we were, if we were like, let's say, if we go back to like um, mid or late August when we were starting to see that increase from um, 100 cases per day in the province to 120, 130. You know, if you know, if you've been paying attention at all to pandemic growth, like those little increases become big increases very quickly, and you can't just say, oh, it's just an aberration. It's just a week or two of of unusual numbers, like. Maybe you might have a day or two of unusual numbers, but a full week or once you see that seven-day average start to creep up, you know that, that things are growing. And that's the time when you can make small measures and, uh, and bring things back down. Or at least you have time to try a few different small measures to see what works best to bring those numbers back down. But once we're at the point where, where, we're not, where we are now, where our public health units are just completely um, overworked by the uh, massive number of cases that we have they can't even do contact tracing for all cases um more than 50 percent of cases have no known epidemiological link meaning we just don't know 
how they became infected, you know, these targeted small measures are now no longer available to us because we just don't know what's happening. You know, the only reasonable thing to do if the province's goal is to actually stop the spread of the pandemic is to go into a, a major shutdown again. Uh, and and well, of course not, and especially from a political standpoint. I mean, even if experts like yourself say, look, at this is probably the path we're going to have to go down. Uh, yeah, as you say, once you, you let the genie out of the bottle, it's pretty hard to get it back in. You know, people have said, no, no, come on. But the, it's the growth rate, I guess, that really concerns us. And when you compare this, and I think Dr. Williams did this during their uh, press conference yesterday, uh, Ontario's numbers could potentially exceed the numbers seen in European countries who are in levels, different levels of lockdown. We keep hearing about this horrific story in, in France and the UK. We're almost there. Uh, are we not realizing exactly where we are on this path? Um, I think that our, our, our experts, um, you know, Public Health Ontario, the, the you know, great individuals in our public health units, I'm sure they are very well aware of where we are in the path. And as you said, we can look at any number of countries who are, you know, just a little bit more ahead of us to see what our future holds. But the problem is they're not the ones who are ultimately making the decisions about what happens. I mean, just yesterday there was an article in the Star from a few different expert groups that uh, Doug Ford had said had been consulted and had advised on this new uh, series of stages. And they said, no, we absolutely were not consulted and we would never recommend um, these numbers. Like Public Health Ontario said that they would recommend going into a lockdown at 2.5% 2.5% positivity. And now, you know, stage red, which is not actually the highest stage, uh, it's the second highest uh, stage of, uh, of restrictions, is at 10% positivity on those test rates. I mean, that's a fourfold difference and uh, double what WHO recommends for a lockdown. Uh, I mean, just these numbers are, are just, frankly, completely out of whack. Uh, they just don't make sense if the goal is to actually control the spread of disease. Yeah, well, we shouldn't really be surprised. I mean, you know, as we recall, when they rolled out the back-to-school plan, and well, it was the last week of August, you know, like a week and a half before, uh, I, and they said, well, you know, this is this is an strict adherence with the Hospital for Sick Kids plan. No, it wasn't. It was not. They this, the, the plan from hospital for the Sick Kids Hospital stressed social distancing, and the schools aren't doing that, and the province didn't do that. So you, you can't take key parts out and say, yes, we've consulted, and, and here's what we're going to do. Uh, and and so that that's problematic. But I've, I've got a bigger problem. I'm glad you brought up this color coding system because I've had a, they, they looked pretty proud of themselves the other day when they all stood up there and talked about this. What does this color coding system do to help prevent the spread? Uh, which is what the government should be doing. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to tell you how bad it is. Uh, what are you going to do to stop it from getting as bad as it does? I mean, color coding means nothing. That tells you, all right, you've been you haven't been in compliance, so here's how bad it is. What's the plan? I, I still don't know that we actually have a plan. Uh, and, and, and this is what you've, I think, uh, pointed us toward right now. What are we going to do right now? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to put restrictions on paper, uh, but what they're doing is not working. So let's have that discussion. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say there, there's one thing that I like about this color-coded plan, and that's that, you know, for one, it's, it's five stages, not like the three stages uh, yeah. that we had in the summer, which is just way too much happening from as you progress from one stage uh, to another in the reopening to really understand, you know, what what is happening, you know, was that was that safe to do? Um, so five stages is good. And I like that there is that there are actually quantitative uh, measures, um, in addition to some qualitative measures that are associated with each stage so that, uh, you know, when a certain number is hit, you just automatically advance and you don't have to hem and haw about, oh, maybe the numbers will get better tomorrow or in a few days and, you know, getting sort of caught up in the 
uh, like the moment of things being open and not wanting to close them again. But the problem is just that the numbers that are associated with uh, with each of these stages and the things that are actually shut down are are ludicrous. I mean, there, it's it's basically nothing. Um, you know, I mean, I, like as I said before, like I'm really picking on the sub percent positivity and in, uh, in in the testing rate that the province has picked up to enter control, which, um, as I said before, is the red phase, which is not the highest phase. And I actually think that that's a big problem because I know when I hear, oh, stage red, I think, you know, red alert, code red, this is the absolute yeah. most severe thing that we can do. But it's actually not. And I think that's playing a little bit of like a, you know, marketing mind game with, uh, with mm-hmm. people's heads on the part of the province. But, you know, a percent positivity at 10%. Like, I mean, we should be shut down way earlier than, than that. Like, we should be shut down by by the time the, uh, like, the quantitative numbers that are in the, the yellow and orange, that's uh, stages two and three, um, by the time those numbers are hit, we should already be in lockdown, right? Like, we should never allow ourselves to get to the point where we're looking at percent positivity of 10% or RT, that's, uh, you know, like uh, the current uh, reproduction number uh, that we're seeing, not the overall trajectory of the uh, disease, but just, you know, what's happening, um, you know, around this current point in time, like that of 1.2, like that says, like, we are, we are not able to control this thing at all. Like, um, so like I said, I think, you know, if you took all of these quantitative numbers and just shifted them all like two stages up and had us in lockdown by the numbers that are in, say, the orange phase, uh, this might actually be something reasonable. Which is what the UK is actually uh, but, embarking on now. Yeah, and then you know, and then another part of the problem is that, like, even in like you know, stage red, the control stage, like, as I said, it, it's really very, it's not very different from stage two. Uh, in in the previous plan, there's just you know a little bit more restriction on uh, indoor dining, and um, gym classes are just a little bit more restricted. But other than that, it's almost not at all different from where we are right now. So it's. It, you know, I feel like it's a whole bunch of smoke and mirrors. Well, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, point fingers at any one particular industry. I mean, but restaurants and bars, of course, usually get singled out on this. And as you said, when Hamilton apparently is moving into Cone Orange, and one of the restrictions in that, I'm sure you're aware of, professors. Well, that means that bars can't start or have to stop serving alcohol by 10 o'clock. <laughs> shouldn't the conversation be? Shouldn't you? Should you be in that bar in the first place? Yeah, I, I absolutely. Think that it should be. I mean, great. Other countries have seen that um, limiting the hours that alcohol is served has actually been effective. Uh, I guess the the people that would stay out really late, binge drinking uh, in this sort of environment, are the people that are particularly likely to be super spreaders. Yeah. So, so there is some merit to that, but I think with the numbers that we are at right now, we are beyond the point where anything non-essential should be open. Uh, you know, as I said before. Over 50% of cases aren't able to be traced. We don't know how people are contracting COVID right now. So we just have to start shutting things down, right? We can't, we can't be targeted. We can't look and say, okay, only 10% of current cases are coming from bars or restaurants. Therefore, bars or restaurants are probably mostly safe. We just don't know. I'm going to ask you, well, it's one of the more controversial areas of the discussion, but it's a discussion that a lot of people are shying away from. Uh, first of all, the premier is, is hesitant uh, 
to put a, a, a province-wide uh, uh, more face mask uh, law in place. I mean, he's leaving it up to the municipalities, which is the worst way to get anything done. We saw that with the smoking bylaw until the provincial government finally stepped up and said, all right, same rules for everybody. Uh, so it's not happening. So some jurisdictions have it, some don't. Uh, the, the premier just doesn't seem to want to go down that road. Other jurisdictions have. I, I'm always reminded, Professor, of, of uh, about two months ago when Dr. Redfield from the Center for Disease Control was before a congressional committee, and he held up his face mask, and he said, this is going to protect me more than any vaccine we can develop. He says, if we all wore these for about six or eight weeks, you see these numbers would just crash. And, and the guy knows what he's talking about. We don't seem to have that resolve. And he's absolutely right. And I think you are right that, you know, we as a people do not have that resolve. I mean, you know, wearing a mask, sure, it's not comfortable, but it's not the end of the world. You know, if we think about all the, the trials and tribulations and difficult life circumstances that our, say, grandparents, great-grandparents were in going through world wars, fighting for all kinds of freedom, I mean, I think we could just wear a mask for a month or two and not complain about it if it's for the good of our country. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to, that a lot of people just don't want to inconvenience themselves in even the slightest way with wearing a mask. And, and uh, you know, the CDC um, person is exactly correct that if we just did something really extreme or, or really coordinated for just six weeks, COVID would essentially disappear, right? Because COVID is not just hanging in the air at all times. If you can manage to make sure that every person who's infected even if they're fully asymptomatic, does not infect anybody else by wearing a mask, having everybody wear a mask, then as soon as, you know, all the current people are, who are infected recover, uh, it's done. The end. It's, and it's the most simple part of this whole thing. And I know, you know, I'm not going to you know, fall into this rhetoric of people, well, they told us initially not to. No, they didn't. They said there weren't enough masks. Uh, so don't buy them because we need them for medical personnel. Well, we're past that now. So we have enough PPE. But we, we, and I know most people are doing it. I get that. But, you know, it only takes one not to, to to spread something around like this. And it's not as if they're saying wear it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's when you go out in public. That's all they're saying. So it might be an hour a day, might be 20 minutes a day, might not even be at all, but if you go out to wear it. I, I, I don't see why governments are so reticent to say, look, at, this is probably the best tool we've got. Let's make sure that everybody's doing it. it you know, they didn't say in 1965, if you feel like wearing a safe belt, safety belt in your car, go ahead, because that might save. No, they said everybody's going to do it because they say it's for the common good. Yeah, this is for the common good, isn't it? Yeah, and you're going to get a ticket if you're yeah. caught not doing it. Yeah. Right, so there's that enforcement element as well. But there's and, and very that's, little that's, That goes back to your point of what do we have the resolve for this? Yeah. Politically. Politically. Yeah, politically and I think just individually. And I think part of all that is the mixed messaging that's coming from um, the provincial government about whether or not we're in a very serious and dangerous position with respect to our health care system. I haven't seen anyone from the province talking about the fact that William Osler Hospital in Brampton has been on complete bypass for the past uh, week or so, meaning mm -hmm. they are they cannot accept a single another patient because they are so overrun with COVID patients. In addition to the patients that uh, that they're currently seeing, you know, if somebody in Brampton gets sick, they're immediately redirected to a different hospital in the GTA, which then um, takes up space at other hospitals, which then means that they don't have as much space for COVID patients or other patients. And this whole thing is, is again, it's, it's snowballing in front of our eyes. And the province isn't really 
telling people that we are in a bad situation. You know, this hemming and hawing over masks and uh, who has the power to do what? Is it the provincial government or the municipal government? All of that is telling people that, oh, it can't really be that bad. And yeah. a lot of people who aren't following the curves themselves will inevitably come to the conclusion that it's not that bad or things are being overblown. Well, what what I don't want to see, and I know we're just about out of time here, is I don't want to be having this discussion with you in about five or six weeks and, and looking back and say, boy, if we'd only done this, I mean, we know what to do. It's just a matter of whether or not we're actually going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Like if we all started right now, just right now, no going outside unless it's for something essential or where you can be very physically distant, like going for a walk or a jog, wear your mask when you're outside, we could have a safe you know, holiday season with our families. But if we keep doing what we're doing or doing what the province is just suggesting with, uh, with stage red or modified stage red, it's not going to happen. Professor, always great to have your perspective on this. Uh, very reassuring, and, and I think we need to, to stay on that message. Thanks so much for this. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you. You too. Be safe. Take care. Professor Dion Edelman from the uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The trial of Annex Manessian, uh, who is, well, it's an off day for the trial. Of course, he is uh, accused of killing 10 people and injuring 16 others in the Toronto van attack. Uh, yesterday, the court, court rather heard some details about his motivation about this incel subculture. Global's Dave Woodard has some details. During legal arguments made over whether the video interview needs to be handed over, the Crown made reference to one of the forensic psychiatrist's notes, saying while Manassian does not suffer from psychosis, his autistic way of thinking was severely distorted and similar to psychosis. The Crown will get access to that psychiatrist video by the time they're called to the stand. The court is now recessed until Monday. That's when the Crown will introduce its final evidence and the defense will call its first witness, expected to be Alec Manassian's father. Dave Woodard, thanks so much for this. Uh, I want to bring Jordan Donich into the conversation, criminal lawyer with uh, Donich Law. Jordan, uh, thanks so much for joining us today to help help us uh, sift through some of the stuff. Even in the first couple of days here, there's uh, some rather contradictory uh, statements coming from uh, the defense and, and the Crown, which I guess is not totally surprising, is it? No, um with a case like this that's so high profile and so much loss of life, I mean, you can expect each side to be very thorough. Uh, I believe they started with an agreed statement of facts. Um, and basically what that is, um, it's an agreement between the lawyers um, on certain admissions. And, and the reason that that's being done is really for a couple of reasons. One is uh, defense lawyers may not win uh, running the trial. For example, uh, the defense may not win saying he wasn't the guy or um, he didn't intend to do this, or perhaps uh, he didn't, uh, you know, he wasn't the one behind the wheel, right? Defense is not going to be successful on that. We know that. So they'll come to an agreed statement of facts to essentially expedite the trial to the real arguments, uh, which is here is about capacity. And, and did the person really understand uh, the nature and quality of their acts or omissions? One of the key points that Dave Woodard just brought up to us was uh, the defense suggesting that uh, they want a, a, a copy of the uh, the video or audio of the psychiatrist's interview uh, with Manassian. Uh, maybe you could clear something up for us, Jordan. Again, those of us that watch stuff on TV all the time are under the impression that, well, wait a second, if the Crown has evidence, that uh, the defense is automatically entitled to it. Is that the case? Almost always. So I'm not too sure what exactly is the issue here. That's probably something that's happening behind closed doors as, as to a reason. Sometimes the police uh, or the Crown will not provide evidence or try to avoid doing it for some kind of privilege or investigative privilege. But I think you're right. As a general rule, defense lawyers or the defense or the accused, however you want to call it, should have all the evidence as to why there's still a dispute with that. 
Um, I think we'll find out with some time. Um, but likely it's, it's, it's something that the defense team believes is important uh, and could be used uh, for the accused. Well, it's it's going to be interesting because I'm, I, even after the first couple of days here, Jordan, it seems as this is going to boil down because, like you say, he's admitted, to, yes, I was the guy. I'm, that's me. You know, we get that. But it's going to come down to, uh, I guess, his, 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 his mental state at the time. I mean, we're told, and, of course, we haven't seen the video yet either, uh, that during that interview with the psychiatrist, he denied that he had symptoms consistent with psychotic illness, uh, including visual and auditory hallucinations. Uh, but... You know, I guess that's still going to be part of the defense, isn't it? To say, well, no, he, 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 of course he doesn't think he does it. That's part of the problem. I, I can almost see the, the defense forming, but they're going to have to see that video, I guess, to get a handle on it. Yeah, the defense is going to argue, well, you can't listen to anything this guy's saying, right? Because he's not of sane mind. Yeah. So don't, uh, don't take his words literally. And the Crown's going to say, well, actually, you know, these words sound pretty truthful to me. It seems like he knows what he's talking about. Um, and, and he's pretty clear. So uh, these cases really come down to expert witnesses. That's it. And the problem uh, always is, you know, do you ha- you're going to get two experts that probably say two different things. You're going to get a crown expert that says, you know, based on my opinion, uh, he knew what he was doing and uh, he's been planning this for a while and this just wasn't a switch going off. Uh, hey, this is something he premeditated. And the defense is probably going to say this is part of some, you know, mental disorder that, uh, goes over a period of time and, and, and has blended together into this, you know, terrible tragedy. So, uh, and then ultimately the judge uh, will make a decision on, on what's true or not, or what he believes or he, she believes is true or not. I know that uh, it's, I think, accepted by both sides that he's on the autism spectrum, although I guess that's to be determined just how severe it is or where he is on the spectrum. Uh, but to, to, be, to be proven not criminally responsible, you can't just say, okay, he's autistic. Uh, there has to be, I would think, some proof that that whatever phrase he's in or whatever severity he has was contributory to what what he actually did that day. Yeah, and, and we hear that all the time as, as as defense lawyers, right? Oh, you know, I've got mental health issues. Well, what does that mean, right? I mean, is it if it's just uh, you know if it's anxiety, depression, things that are pretty common, it doesn't get you off the charge, no. Um, and that's the same thing here. I mean, the standard is going to be a lot higher because there's a loss of life. If, for example, he got in a bar fight, right, and, and slugged somebody, and the, and the guy maybe got a broken nose, um, that might be enough, be, given the nature of the injuries and the fact that it was, uh, you know, there's no loss of life. But when you're in this type of scale of damage, um, you, you can bet that the court's going to be very careful before they essentially find somebody not criminally responsible um, because, uh, you know, they're going to want to likely maintain control over someone like this if they believe they're still dangerous. Well, especially because, I mean, there are some, well, put it this way, questions of this being raised, you know, wherever he is on the spectrum. Uh, you know, not everybody who has autism gets in a van and starts driving down the sidewalk to kill people. I mean, you know, that, that, that's not usual behavior for people that are on the spectrum. And as one expert uh, has told us already, uh, more often than not, uh, people living on the autism spectrum are victims of violence and bullying. They, are, they aren't the perpetrators of it. So there seems to be some contradictions here. Yeah, I think you're right. And in, in, it's called autism spectrum disorder, ASD, for a reason. And I yeah. think uh, you said it because there's a spectrum. Right, you're not uh, insane or not insane. You're not capable of making decisions and not capable. You might be somewhere in between high or low. Um, but you're right. I mean, give, it's not typical behavior for somebody with that mental disorder. So, 
I think the defense is going to have an uphill battle, and there's a lot of public interest. And again, it's 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 all around terrible. So um, the court and the crown is going to be very careful before I think uh, coming to any type of finding a fact, and, and it very well could be appealed even if we get through this stage. I was going to ask you that. We're just about out of time, but it's, it's you would think inevitable that there will be an appeal, would you? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever happens here, I think is going to be done all over again. Whether he's uh, whether it's by the defense or the crown, I think we can expect that uh, given the profile. And uh, and then of course there's going to be lots of uh, arguments around sentencing as well if he is convicted. Absolutely, Jordan. Great to get your perspective as always. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Not a problem. Thank you. Take care. Jordan Donich, of course, criminal lawyer with Donich Law. Uh, it's, I say, a day off for the Manassian trial, but uh, certainly a lot of questions being raised and uh, a lot of people following this with great interest because of the sheer tragedy, of course, of what happened and, and the loss of life. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. HML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.